0: the dark shadows of the Rue Morgue, to the rhythm of the stolen tell-tale heart, as the black cat swings upon the pendulum, and the cask offers its sherry, deep and dry. As you knock at our chamber door, we open and usher you in. Our sleepless tales for you in store. The terror shall be lifted. Nevermore. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Welcome to the No Sleep Podcast. I'm your host, David Cummings. When we think of Edgar Allan Poe, we usually think of his writing as grounded, usually undergrounded, as it were, with themes of premature burial, death, and other terrestrial notions. But did you know that in 1848 he published Eureka, a prose poem, which was Poe's intuitive conception of the nature of the universe? turns out Eddie liked to ponder the stars and the cosmos. In fact, he considered this his greatest work. To that end, we're featuring stories in this episode which slip the surly bonds of Earth into the planets and deep space of our solar system. Horror amongst the stars. And along those lines, if trippy, otherworldly, X-Files-esque storytelling is what you crave, I'd like to highlight a podcast for you. The Sleep-Wake Cycle is an audio-drama podcast blending supernatural horror with noir and dark fantasy. Here's a short trailer to give you a taste.
1: It was hard to believe that dreams even happened. What the hell did I know? I haven't slept a day in my life.
2: I'd been a professional dream catcher for most of my life, yet the trepidation of lowering myself into the depths of sleep was always there.
1: I wasn't a man, and the exopaths weren't just killers we were microcosms of grander forces i was the order that chased down their chaos
2: the power of the emerging creature shook my bones
1: you aren't the only one who likes the cold fella
2: i'm not running anymore
1: it's time to see just how much sanity i can bring to this screwball reality <laughs>
2: From the creators of the Maltopia Horror Podcast, The Sleep-Wake Cycle is an audio drama podcast blending supernatural horror with noir and dark fantasy. Born during the night plague of 1983, the Stroud twins have been reunited after a lifetime apart, their way forward lit by dimmest foxfire. Known as the Dreamcatcher and the Insomniac, the twins possess strange abilities, making them uniquely suited to their role as investigators for the Esoterium, a clandestine agency bent on restoring a republic ravaged by the great darkness of 1999. Confronting the Strouds is a world forsaken of sanity, where coffins oft become cocoons, shadows rise against the sun, and reality is just the husk that dreams have left behind. Be sure to check out The Sleep-Wake Cycle on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform.
0: The Sleep-Wake Cycle from the team at Mailtopia. Well worth exploring. And now, our tales come to you upon a midnight dreary. Best not to ponder them while weak and weary. In our first tale, we meet a man on a mission in space. He must get medicine to a desperate planet no matter what. But in this tale, shared with us by author Alexander Hay, we learn that he made a fateful decision which will affect him more than he could have imagined. Performing this tale are David Alt and Erica Sanderson. So when making a calculated decision, get your numbers right. If not, you'll soon learn that, the equation's cold.
3: Out of the void, she shrieks, temperature at absolute zero and giddy with hatred. In space, the old cliche goes, no one can hear you scream but no one told the vengeful dead. I can feel her presence even before the sensors on my ship start blinking in alarm. My hands shake as I try to keep the craft under control. My nose begins to sting with chill and my skin is burning numb. I had no choice. You stowed away. There wasn't enough fuel for us to get the medicine to that world. They'd have died. I had to eject you. You know that, right? Sector by sector, the ship goes dark and cold. Soon, only the cockpit has any power, bathed red with backup lights. I light up the cabin with a flare which crackles and hisses with dying purple fire. She is outside. Suddenly the bulkhead doors rip open with a squeal of tortured metal. The dead girl floats in, desiccated and crystallized, frozen forever. Clouds of biting, freezing fog roll in behind her. In shock, I drop my flare.
2: You forgot who you were. Men like you, they're supposed to find a way. That's what you're for. But you were too fucking spineless to challenge the numbers. Did you even dare tell my brother what you did?
3: Long, raw fingers begin to caress and encircle my face. I stare deep into sunken, frosted eyes.
2: We're going to cold, dark places, you and I. You do the maths.
0: As technology moves closer and closer to interplanetary exploration, we dream about what it might be like to have humanity reach into our solar system, planets and moons which might allow us to live as extraterrestrials. And in this tale, shared with us by author Gabriel Kiesel, we meet a man who is the first human to delve into the ocean on one of Jupiter's moons, descending deep into that dark, alien water. Performing this tale, are Atticus Jackson and Sarah Thomas. So listen closely. Can you hear what he hears? The voices in Europa.
1: Time of immersion. One hour. Depth. Ten kilometers into Europa's ice sheet. The wind always howls on Europa, mighty Jupiter's smallest daughter sharing the horizon with a naked cosmos. I stared at its twilight-swept ocean of ice and dust. Hidden under the shadow of its colossal monarch, it glowed blue, making Earth with its sprawling towers seem to be nothing but a fool's dream. Not that I wish to go back, of course. Those on Earth that had something to return to were the first to be eliminated from the candidate-picking process. No, this was the time and place for a man like me. I was to be the first to touch that moon's hidden ocean under the ice. To be forever written in the pages of humanity's history. A fact which did not help make it any less terrifying. My steps echoed rhythmically throughout the metallic hallway along with the engineering crew. The current colonial administration desired that the first exploration of an extraterrestrial ocean happened before elections took place back on our home planet. Thus, it was decided that the first pod was to be launched at the end of Europa's dusk, before the oppressive light of the sun could turn the whole of it into a disco ball again. You could hear a pin drop in the diving bay while my vehicle and I were being prepared. None dared to break the concentration of the physicians as they ran their tests, breathing exercises to ensure my heart rate was stable, controlling my breath so as not to consume more oxygen than the life support systems were able to filter out of the water. When the whole song and dance was done, I was prompted to enter the pod. The tight metallic cylinder had a monitor to allow me to control the omnidirectional camera at the bottom of the hole, as well as the course-correction thrusters. And of course, barely enough space to bend my knees. Other than the camera, my only view of the outside world came from a window designed to withstand the pressure of 260 megapascals of the European sea bottom. Currently, I'm staring at an unending corridor of ice outside. But more on that later. Fancy equipment aside, the fact is, I'm in a hot, damp metal can feeling like tuna. Because someone higher up didn't want to spend the extra dollar necessary to send a full size submarine across space. Once I was packed inside, they sealed the hatch. Which I was told was a safety measure to ensure I didn't kill myself by opening it in case of an emergency. That's what the cyanide pills in my pocket are for. The custom-made suspension cable was then hooked to the pod, and I was lifted into the air like a pig in a wet market. The engineers attached a drill to the bottom, ready to cleave into Europa's virgin ice. I was left alone to attach the final seatbelt as the red lights and sirens signaled to evacuate the room for depressurization. I hailed mission command. This is Carlos Diaz. All systems are green. I reported feeling quite content with my professionalism. Beneath me, the moon pool opened, revealing the thick layer of ice that made up Europa's surface. There, a small team of drones had been hard at work carving a tunnel toward the underground ocean. After a couple of minutes waiting for the drones to clear the way, the order was given to lower me ever so slowly into the hole. The drill in my pod made short work of any reforming ice. And just like that, I was on my way. That was... about an hour ago. Now, as I'm recording these mandatory mission logs to be sent back to Earth, I can't help but look at all the packed walls of ice outside with excitement for what awaits me underneath. Time of immersion. Four hours. Depth. 22 kilometers beneath the ice sheet. When the thick white walls of ice around me finally disappeared, there was no grand uproar. Only the tension and resistance of the ice breaking away, followed by the peace of water. That, in the silent darkness of the underworld. There, where no man before had ventured, silence was my only companion. A certain quote by Nietzsche came to me, but I drove it from my mind... I didn't want to break the peace of the moment. Unfortunately, this was short-lived. Duty called, and I reported the success of the mission's first step to the sound of great cheer from the control room over the radio. I was asked what I could see around me. I replied, not much, before hastily correcting myself. In my periphery, I detected something outside my window. There's an external source of light at four hours. Green circles moving in a strange pattern. The order was then issued for me to turn on the camera and switch to night vision. To my delight, and that of the whole operation, we saw a lone sea serpent swimming nearby, eyeless, with many antenna-like appendages growing out of its head. Life in the depths... That was the first time I heard the mission commander speak, in a stern voice announcing send a message to Earth, there is life on Europa, which was followed by even more cheering. As my brain acclimated to the pattern of life in that new environment, I soon began to notice more and more sea creatures around me. Each one glowed in their own unique hue with an unspeakable grace. Near me... A pink mass of a thousand appendages passed by harmoniously until it was disrupted by what I thought at first was a small fish, and turned out to be a cloud of sea worms. Beings akin to octopuses melded with the darkness in their hunt for small golden sea insects. In this world without light, animal life had resorted to bioluminescence to survive. A new command was issued and they began to lower me further and further. Or at least, they tried. The cable had become stuck on something. I directed the camera towards the ice ceiling, and the opaque shadow of a four-legged creature of immense size appeared. In one of its six pincers was the metal cable for my pod, which the creature, probably thinking it was either prey or predator, decided to cut severing my only link back to the surface. The pod shook, and I screamed, sinking into the abyss, as I have been for the past thirty minutes. Honestly? Congratulations, Carlos. Your first and only chance to make something of yourself by becoming the first explorer of an extraterrestrial ocean, and you managed to find yourself adrift in the first four hours. Bravo. (sighs) <sighs> Luck is a fickle bitch. But at least it seems to like me enough to put me on a mission that's incredibly important for the bigwigs back on Earth. Either they rescue me, or they lose the election for Global Console. So, I should be rescued shortly. Europa has very low gravity, so I should sink slowly. And thanks to the life support system, I have plenty of oxygen. Until then... I guess I get to enjoy the beautiful view down here. Anyway, until they pick me up, I'm gonna keep recording these logs on what I find down here. Maybe Command is trying to keep me busy while thinking of a way to get me out. Time of immersion: 6 hours. Depth: 53 kilometers. So. Here's a little story for anyone who might be listening to this recording. I've been trying to contact Mission Command for about two hours now, but because I'm several kilometers underwater and separated by 15 kilometers of ice, the communication system is not exactly working too well. So I tried redirecting power from the camera to the comm system, and it worked. I was able to reach out and listen to what they were saying at the control room. They knew I could hear them, but they couldn't hear me because of interference. Even if I was screaming at the top of my lungs. Why would I scream, you ask? Because Mission Commander Katarina, while in full knowledge that I could hear her, made full use of her office to tell them to cut off my signal permanently. We already have the life reports we came here for, and this mission cannot be jeopardized by what Mr. Carlos Diaz might say if he was to return from his predicament. The crew questioned her. She replied that our mission had a symbolic meaning to Earth, and that it was better to let me die a martyr to science than have it fail to save me. And why the fuck not? Am I right? That's why they picked candidates from the prison population. They aimed for a disposable pilot. So, here's the thing. If there are more missions to the European Ocean in the future, and someone happens to find this recording, make sure it goes viral. Make the lives of the members of the Neo-Illuminist Party a living hell. And please fucking please with sugar on top get lieutenant Katarina murkowski court-martialed fuck time of immersion unknown depth no even cares at this point i'm not quite sure if i believe in some higher power but if it does exist it must hold some kind of bizarre grudge against me. Not that I don't deserve it, of course. I did plenty of bad before getting here. So, I came up with this idea that basically makes it more expensive, politically, for them to kill me than to let me live. You see, this pod has a tracker that lets Mission Command know where I am at every moment. It has an independent power source and requires very little energy. But because of the ice, they were probably no longer picking me up. But what if I was to get to the surface? What if I made saving my life too easy to simply not try? Not everyone in the control room is heartless. Those initial objections would only get worse, and they could either threaten Katarina into rescuing me or or demote her. And oh boy, how I would love that. The best way to do this was by redirecting the power of the pod to the thrusters so I could boost myself up to where they could trace me again. First, I activated just the left thruster to spin me around. I was upside down, but the thrusting system was in the right direction. Then I had to hack the pod's power regulator and redirect all energy to both the right and left thrusters, rocketing myself towards the ice. Well, turns out this power regulator couldn't take that much of a surge towards a single system. It cut off all power to the left thruster and sent me spinning into the void. I must have hit my head because I just woke up. The monitor is fried. I'm not sure how deep I am or for how long I've been out. There's vomit all over the pod. Which tells me I had a concussion, and explains why I'm so hungry right now. I must also be upside down, because I feel like there's a lot of blood in my skull. At least I know the black box for this thing is working. So I get to speak in order to keep sane, though I'm starting to think that even that's not working. There's singing coming from outside. Maybe it's one of those animals from this place. I can still see them shining in the deep, though these ones have big eyes and transparent teeth, which tells me something about what's going to happen to my body. Honestly, if I knew where those damn cyanide pills were, I'd have taken them already, or at least tried to open this damn hatch and let Europa crush me. But they slipped out of my pocket, and they're now loose somewhere in this tin can. Oh, who am I kidding? I bet I could find a way to open the hatch, but I can't. Too much of a coward to do it. I threw everything away for a chance to show up in history books. First with the South American insurrection, and then volunteering in prison for this shit show. There's nothing on earth left to return to. I was dead long before the cable broke. At least the view outside is really pretty. Water, water. Everywhere. And the pond started to shrink. Water, water everywhere. And not a drop to drink. Do you think Samuel Taylor Coleridge will sue me in the afterlife? I guess I'll find out. My vision is starting to black out. Weary
4: soul tossed about by the currents, an interloper forsaken by the mind. Join your voice to our chorus in this world of things that deserve to be forgotten.
1: My prison had a library, you know, and it was a really good one. I got to read this book that said modern man's worst fear was to sit alone in the dark with his own thoughts. I'm starting to understand what that means. The only language this place speaks is silence. And I've been getting quite fluent. And all the fish have disappeared, so it's been very dark for a while now, and I've been getting some very unpleasant thoughts. Like, when I said I don't believe in a higher power, for example. Well, what do people mean by higher? Higher than the sky? The stars? Higher here? I don't know if I believe in a higher power, but here... Where there is no high or low, where I've been sinking for a whole day, there are plenty of powers which float about in the dark. Let me start from the beginning. Ever since I gave up on going back, I've been staring out the window at the beauty of this world. Have you ever seen a fish's spine emit waves of rainbows? Have you ever seen an octopus open up like a flower? Unleashing a thousand babies, I have. Quite a shame, those won't be my last sights. I started to get lost in their many shapes. Those off, sleep, and awaken. Until I could no longer tell when I was dreaming. And eventually, once I awoke, I noticed there was a handprint on my window. From the outside for a while I tried to figure out what it could have been, so I started paying closer attention. Which is when I noticed the lack of light around me. And that is when I saw what seemed to be a person shining a white light of its own. They wore white robes and carried a sword, and their words were like rocks rolling down a mountain during a thunderstorm. You do not belong here. Leave this place at once. It unsheathed its blade, and the fire began to boil the surrounding water. Something similar happened to its eyes, which burned like hot coal. It walked towards me. Walked. Not swam nor floated. It took a few steps in my direction with its sword raised before it. And for a moment, I believed my pain was over. But out of nowhere, laughter echoed in my mind. And in theirs as well, I think. Because that thing recoiled before it was grabbed by a huge, dark hand. I'm not sure what I saw, but I can't help but be terrified of thinking about it. After a while, i blacked out again, and awoke just recently when I heard my pod hitting the bottom of the European Ocean. And now that I look through the window, I see millions upon millions of beings like the one from before. The only difference is that their eyes are not white coals as before, they are black and they are smiling. They are the Forsaken Chorus. They were waiting for me. They welcome me. They're opening the hatch. I'm home.
0: There are astronauts who have spoken about what it's like to be isolated in space. Solitary humans in a spacecraft, thousands of miles from Earth, completely alone. For many, the thought is terrifying. But as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author Simon Kewen, a woman alone on her spacecraft is dealing with the aftermath of a meteor storm which affected her ship and left her wondering why something is outside of it banging to get in performing this tale are Aaron Lillis and Jake Benson. So if you hear the noise, the incessant knocking, try to ignore it. It's nothing more than a moat in the void
4: clanging sound had been there for several minutes before Kelly really noticed it. Everything on the damn ship rattled or vibrated or squealed. She looked around, floating there in the cramped cylinder of the work habitat, trying to figure out where the new noise came from. It sounded like something banging on the outside of the hull. How the hell could that be? Maybe some part of the comm rig knocked loose in the meteor strike or a solar cell flapping around. Power was certainly down, although she had expected that this far out. Some damn thing was broken out there. She laddered herself along the grabs and flew aft to press her ear against the curving aluminum bulkhead. Whatever had come loose was only centimeters from her head, out there in the void of space. Bang, tap, 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 bang. Which made no sense. There obviously couldn't be something just flapping around. It came to her that it must be Richards, somehow still alive and trying to signal to her by banging on the hull. But she'd seen him through the observation ports, drifting away after the meteor, whatever the hell it was, struck. Seen him tumbling head over heels into space, umbilical flailing around and venting O2. He was alive then, judging by the way he waved his arms around and kicked his legs. But they'd lost comms. She'd never know how long he'd lasted out there. Him and the Ares II's only EVA suit. She zoomed herself back up to the flight deck to see if anything was visible from the ports now. She could make out Mars quite clearly. A definite circle, reddish-brown, dead ahead. But she needed to see the other way back along the fuselage. Damn shame the meteor strike had taken out the steerable cameras, too. She pressed her face against the carbon plex window, trying to make out what had come loose. Earth would need to know. Damn it, she needed to know. This thrown-together ship was the only thing keeping her alive. She could see something just visible in the distorted glass at the edge of the window, gray and snake-like, Flapping to and fro. What the hell was that? The other end of Richard's umbilical, she guessed. She flipped open the comms link to report the situation to Earth. Even if they replied immediately, it would be 30 minutes before she got a response. With Earth on the other side of the sun, communications were fuzzy anyway. She hadn't had a reply for two days now. Still, she sent in her report, trying to sound calm matter of fact. She sat and waited for a response, knowing there was no point, but craving some word anyway. With Richards gone, she was utterly alone, more alone than any other human had ever been. She tried not to think about it. All she heard from the calm was the background hiss of the void. Damn, mission has been cursed from the start, thrown together in too much of a hurry. That was the problem. Earth had lost contact with the Ares-1 as it neared Mars, and suddenly they needed a rescue mission. Ares-2 wasn't supposed to be commissioned for another year, but they'd fast-tracked it into service, only two of its five pods habitable. Sent her and Richards off against all the rules to find out what the hell had happened to the first manned mission to Mars. While she waited, She thought once again about the distress signals they'd received from Bohana, Achibe, Jones, Edrickson, and Sue on the Ares One. Their frantic, garbled screaming had become the soundtrack to her nightmares. What the hell had happened to them? They were the sanest people she knew. The psychological effects of prolonged spaceflight and confinement were well understood, sure. Still... It sounded like all five had flipped at the same moment. Their insane ramblings replayed in her head now. Their words had been clear enough once the text defuzzed the signal. Out
5: there! fast! <coughs> the My God! It's... That eye! That eye looking in at us!
4: That was Bohanna screaming... Nothing ever fazed Bohana. The skipper of the Ares One was the most laid-back person Kelly had ever met. There'd been trouble from fundamentalists before they blasted off. A religious sect raving about them invading God's domain or some such bullshit. Police said they were dangerous people, fanatics. Instead of ignoring them, Bohana had met with them, explained the true nature of space from an astrophysicist's perspective. A stupid, futile thing to do, but he'd enjoyed every moment of it, despite the crazies, warnings, and threats. And six months later, there he was, screaming all that gibberish into the calm. She looked up. The banging had stopped. Maybe something had worked itself loose? But how could that be? She shook her head to put it out of her mind. She needed to stay focused, and she needed to stay busy. Some mass hysteria had swept through the first ship. Her job was to get out there, find out what had happened, then slingshot back to Earth with the facts. Then the banging started again. Alarm thumped through her. It had moved. How could it have moved? It came from over on the port side now. Her throat squeezed dry. She berated herself for being so jumpy. Was this how it had started on the Ares One? Some minor malfunction? Some little sound setting their imaginations off into overdrive? She wasn't going to let it happen to her. It had to be Richards still out there somehow. Maybe he'd managed to use the umbilical to propel himself back to the ship. That must be it. She had to open the hatch for him immediately. Haul him inside. They didn't have another EVA rig, but they did have vacuum suits in case the ship depressurized. It would keep her alive for long enough. She wouldn't have thrusters, but she could pull herself along the fuselage, grab Richard's umbilical. It was risky, but they'd trained to do worse. Nothing could go wrong if she tethered herself. The thought of no longer being alone made her heart pound with excitement. She thought about telling Earth what she was about to do, then decided against it. Probably best the people waiting back there didn't know. She shrugged her way into the suit. They'd practiced the procedure a thousand times back on Earth. The suit felt uncomfortable, pinching her limbs and restricting her movements. She ignored it. With the hatch access sealed off from the rest of the ship, she pumped the air out to avoid explosive decompression, tethered herself, then instructed the hatch to unseal. When it was open, she pushed herself through. The vastness of space yawned around her. After the cramped quarters of the ship, the sight of it made her dizzy stretching off to infinity in all directions. She was an insignificant moat in these fathomless gulfs. It felt like the unblinking stars stared at her from every direction. She pushed it all out of her mind. Focus. She had to find Richards. She faced forwards, looking along the smooth metal curves of the ship, Mars dead ahead. She began to twirl herself around to look for him. The comms array was just to her left, or it should have been, but it had been sheared off the hull by some immense force. A few cables were left, hanging loose from the fuselage like dead worms. Her communications had been going nowhere. How long had they been going nowhere? She pivoted further around, and then she saw it. The vast being that had attached itself to the back of the Ares regarded her with a single enormous eye. It dwarfed the ship. Its shape and size were hard to grasp against the darkness of space. But the lights of the Ares, and the way the being eclipsed the background stars, suggested an ovoid bulk gray and ancient as moon rock. It lashed countless appendages around, tentacles that ended with a curved claw the size of her body. One claw skittered across the smooth hull beside her, trying to gain a hold, trying to break in through the metal. She knew the sound it would be making in there. Bang. Tap, 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 bang. Had it been out here all along, hooked onto the ship while she worked and slept inside? Oblivious? She stared at the monstrosity while her mind reeled. No, it couldn't be. Such a creature didn't exist. Could not exist. Some small, logical part of her brain still worked. The prolonged isolation had affected her after all. She'd listened too long to the babbling of the crew of the Ares One, to Bohana's last words,
1: not ours always theirs
4: she had to get back inside seal the hatch inform earth she had to think but before she could act a claw caught her plucking her away from the ship the line tethering her to the Ares snapped as the star creature sent her spinning off into the void she spun past its enormous eye it was lifeless rudimentary like a shark's yet she knew the creature saw her perceived her she felt a high-pitched screaming sound ring around in her brain kelly screamed wordlessly into her suit calm. but there was no one to hear
0: If the day ever comes that humans reach other planets, encounter alien life forms and even offer them our technology as a peace offering, would we be safe? As we'll learn in this tale, shared with us by author Vincent Paimon Desalais, a group of men are stuck in a storm on an alien planet. Their only chance is to avoid the hostile creatures who are using human technology in unintended ways. I join Mike Delgado, Graham Rowett and Ellie Hirschman in performing this tale. So be careful what you share with others, especially new life forms. You may have to raise a toast for the hosts. Lightning struck the antenna of the mobile weather station, and a fire broke out. A throbbing red light in the black landscape. Gordon grabbed the fiberglass blanket and climbed onto the roof. The station was about the size of a caravan, and the blanket could cover the fire area, but the gusts of cold wind made the flames arduous to handle. He yelled over the thunder and the hail hitting the metal.
6: Come on, give me a hand!
0: His head was about to crack. Their instruments had recorded a substantial drop in atmospheric pressure earlier that day, as was often the case on a planet with such a hostile climate. He looked around, a hand on his forehead to shield himself from the aggressive hail, and tried to discern the tall figures he dreaded to see. Lightning illuminated the night in flashes that revealed the thick sea of trees, the inky mountains looming in the distance, and the whirlpool of dark clouds. They should have left. They had stayed in the same spot much too long. He sought his crewmates. Bill was bent over, hands on his knees, vomiting in the dirt. Arthur was nowhere to be seen, probably passed out from whiskey. Gordon kept stomping the blanket, struggling to keep his balance on the slippery, rounded roof. The fire still made too much smoke.
6: We have to put it out! They'll see us!
0: A series of hoarse coughs burst out of him. He cursed his colleagues and trampled the blanket faster. His head spun. The fire died. As he got off the roof, he slipped on the hailstones, hit his back, and fell face down on the ground. He pushed himself to his knees, wheezing. Blood poured from his nose. He looked up. Bill was straight as a rod, staring at something in front of him. His hands quivered against his thighs. Gordon turned his head. They were here. The room was dark and silent, except for Arthur's grunts as he punched the rock wall. You think that's gonna help? Arthur stopped boxing to catch his breath.
5: It hardens me, all right? I want to be ready when those bastards come back.
0: He kept hitting.
5: I don't care how big they are. That don't matter if you're fierce enough. Just punch them in the lower jaw like you do a mad dog. Ugly fuckers!
0: He followed the rugged walls and patted the cold, damp rock. It's
6: better not to do anything hostile for now. We don't know what they want. Maybe they just want to trade or send some kind of message because we crossed into their territory. If they wanted us dead, they could have killed us already. You talk like they're people. You can't reason with
5: animals.
0: Arthur stumbled and Bill shrieked.
6: Ah.
5: That was my leg. It ain't my fault if we can't see shit.
0: They haven't hurt anyone in a long
6: time.
5: Yeah, till now. They surely didn't drag us here to invite us for supper. So what if we got in that territory? You cross some line and they tear you to shreds? That's politics for you."
0: They had been sent to map out seismic activity, gather soil samples and meteorological data, move the mobile station further, deeper into no man's land. The base wanted to expand and needed clement spots for crops.
6: Better to wait until we know what they want.
0: We don't want to do something dumb and make it worse. Arthur ignored him. He got to a part of the wall with a slight cavity. Uh, I'm sure
5: it's the door.
0: He rubbed his hands along it. Must be the door.
5: It's just got to open somehow. You think it opens inward or it slides on
6: the side? We tried that already. At
5: least I'm doing something. Being proactive and all instead of waiting for death to... What the fuck? What? What?
0: Arthur shook his arm, slapped his hand. Something fell with a slimy sound. A dim red glow revealed a large slug squirming on the ground and died out.
5: My hand's bleeding. Burns like hell. Crush the fucker. No, no, wait.
0: Gordon crawled and felt around for the slug. When he found it, he squeezed. The heat coming from the slug intensified as it wriggled in his hand. The red glow brightened. Tiny organs throbbed under the translucent, sticky skin. It's a defense mechanism.
5: How cute. Well, she started it.
0: Gordon let go of the slug and blew on his hand. The room was small, the walls uneven. Bill sat in a corner, arms around his knees. He looked at the slug with curious apprehension. There was no opening in the wall. Not a single crack for light to seep in, but they knew that already. With the tip of his shoe, Gordon pushed the slug closer to what they assumed was the door. The red glow was fading already. He turned to Arthur.
6: Come on, while it lasts.
0: They scrutinized the cavity, ran their fingers at the junctions. The block of rock in the back of the indentation was smoother, more unified. Arthur crouched and squinted, his nose almost touching the floor. There's no marks. They won't open inward. The red glow faded. Arthur and Gordon pushed the wall, tried to slide it to the side.
5: Now, Bill, you useless fuck, aren't giving us a hand?
0: There's no place for the three of us. They struggled some more. Nothing moved an inch.
7: <sighs> <sighs> oh,
8: fuck it.
0: Gordon stepped away from the door and leaned against the adjacent wall. Arthur pounded on the rock with his palms, and the dry thumps resounded for a second before being swallowed by the dark. A muffled scream crawled out of his throat, and he let himself slide down the wall, rubbing his head.
5: God damn it! I shouldn't have downed the whole bottle. Believe me, I'm stronger when I ain't hungover. We should have left in the evening anyway, but you pussies want to wait till morning,
6: scared of a little wind. That's much better. Right, Gordo? He couldn't have known. He's right. We should have left. Staying in the same spot was a bigger risk than the storm. I made a bad call.
5: Damn right you did.
6: But complaining won't change anything.
5: Complaining's all I have left. So don't you take that away from me.
6: Fine. Let's complain. We each get a turn. I'm in no mood for jokes. I'm not joking. If we blow off some steam, we'll think more clearly.
0: For a while, there was only the distant thunder, accompanied by Bill's nervous tapping. Bill, why don't you start?
6: What do you want me to say? Anything. Just get things off your chest.
7: (sighs) It pisses me off that I'll never get a chance to open my own store.
6: Don't talk like that, like we'll never get back. Look, when morning comes, the base will send help. They'll see the communications broken and they'll know something happened. What kind of store? Useful stuff. You know, everyday kind of things.
7: Like we got at the base, but my own. I want to have my own thing.
5: Useful stuff, like
6: booze?
7: Yeah, I'd have that. Sounds great. Yeah, but even if we get back, I still won't have enough saved to make that
5: happen. It ain't worth it. Being miles away from the base, and during those brain-squashing storms, and those things... Now, there's no bonus big enough to justify dealing with that shit. Couldn't a bit of planet with yellow unicorns, there's something like that, huh? Then
6: why'd you do it?
5: Still do it for the cash? What'd you think? Might not be enough, but that's still more than I'd make as a mechanic back home. But you can always use a little more. I'm a big spender, what can I tell you? Got a shitload of debts, too. And I'm tired of being broke. guess I was kind of bored, too. I'm a fresh air man. When I got here, they didn't tell me we'd stay in the base and barely see the sky. Didn't tell me the kind of shit we'd have to deal with outside, either.
6: There's a lot of stuff they left out of the brochure. What can you do?
5: Couldn't get a job on Earth, anyway. Why not? They call it assaulting your employer. I call it giving an asshole what he deserved. That shit sticks with you.
0: Arthur spat on the ground.
5: What about you? What'd you need the extra money for? never seen you buy
6: anything in the shops. I'm saving it. What for? To go back.
0: They stayed silent for a while. Gordon should have never come here. Arthur didn't belong in civilization fit better in the middle of a forest with a shotgun and a flask of whiskey, but there wasn't much forest left on earth, nor were there many animals left to shoot, and Bill did not bear well the constantly buzzing and overcrowded earth. The calm, procedural, and restrained living of his new home suited him when his life wasn't threatened. But Gordon had left on an impulse, an overreaction to a divorce, a lost custody, an attempt to escape feelings that followed him nevertheless that were amplified by every added mile between him and them. He had to leave, as far as he could, and now that he had, he spent every waking minute wishing he could go back.
5: When they get in here, we all jump on the first one through that door and beat it senseless. Give it all we
6: got, that'll make the others think twice. You don't really believe that, do you? Maybe they just don't know what to do with us yet, so we shouldn't give them a reason to kill us.
5: That nonsense yapping again? They've already been pretty fucking hostile, don't you think? Does that feel like good intentions to you? So why not fight back before we're too weak to do anything? Because we're sure to lose. God damn it, that's the spirit. Really bringing much to the table, Billy. If there's one thing I've learned in the whole, it's that it's all about mindset. You act weak, they'll crush you. Hit back, that's how you survive.
7: It doesn't apply here. Nothing applies here.
0: A heavy tromp came from outside the room. More followed, each time closer. Arthur approached the door, but kept his distance. The humans stayed still, silent, listening. The steps stopped. The rock door rumbled as it slid heavily to the left. Gordon groped on the floor until he found the slug, squeezed it, and threw it in front of the entrance. The dim light barely revealed the two dark shapes that entered. "'about eight feet tall, large, very large. "'Arthur's fist shook against his will. "'He froze. Everybody did. "'It happened too fast. "'Arthur's feet lifted off the ground, "'frantically kicked the air as he was dragged into the darkness. "'Gordon jumped to his feet and punched one of the shapes. "'Regretted it immediately. "'His knuckles scraped on rugged, hard scales, "'and a wave of pain shot up his wrist.' The massive head turned toward him and let out a deep roar. A wave of nasty breath hit Gordon's face. A yellow vertical eye staring right at him let him know who was in control. Who would always be in control. Gordon staggered back. On its way out, the shape grabbed the fading slug. Barely bright enough so Gordon could see it get crushed between rows of sharp, teeth filling jaws the length of a man's arm and disappear down the bulky throat with a gulp. The door closed, pitch dark again. Arthur's screams receded along with the heavy steps until all Gordon heard was the pounding of his own heart and Bill's quick breathing. Gordon sat, back against the rock. He held his throbbing, broken wrist blood dripped down his burning knuckles. Had they taken Arthur because he was closest to the door, or had they chosen the toughest one first? They would never know. Gordon had looked for a weakness, found none. He saw only muscles and scales, strength and sharpness, eyes that needed no light, and jaws that could crush bone. The smell of urine filled the air. Bill's. Later, the screams resumed. Distant, yet their nature was clear. They were screams of pain. They echoed through the walls, seemed to stretch for hours, and then silence. Big tough guy yelling like that. You don't scream like that when you
7: get beaten or stabbed. That was a lot worse.
0: Gordon said nothing, but his mind spun. They had no way of communicating with those creatures. So torturing them for information seemed unlikely, and yet it had lasted too long for a simple execution. If they had taken them to trade, for resources, technology, knowledge, weapons, then why kill them? Maybe Arthur had just passed out, maybe he was still alive, and why had they taken only one of them? Maybe they had performed some kind of operation, implanted something in him. Bill was ruminating on the same possibilities, but neither of them spoke. Time did not answer their questions. Arthur never came back. Time dragged by. Thunder still boomed all around. Those storms could last for days. They listened, shivering, snuffling, getting hungry and thirsty. Say something. What? Talk. I don't want to think. Gordon had nothing.
7: Say something for fuck's sake.
0: We'll be all right. He cringed at how unconvinced he sounded.
7: Not
6: stupid
0: things like that. You know it's bullshit. Fine.
6: But there's no way to be sure we won't make it either. There was a brief pause. Do you feel the odds are in our favor?
0: There was no arrogance in Bill's voice. No defiance. It hurt him to say it. We're on their planet. It's their rules. I'm not going to wait until they come get me. Pounding noises shut them up. The door slid open and something fell with a wet, soft sound. Then a hard thud. The door shut. A smell of roasted, nearly burnt meat enveloped the room. The men hesitated, but hunger got them crawling forward toward what they assumed was food. Gordon patted the clammy, charred meat lifted it to his nose, and then dropped it. (sighs) Oh, oh, don't eat it. Why? Bill slid his hand along the large chunk and recoiled.
7: Fucking bastards. I almost ate it.
0: He kicked and banged the nearest wall, (coughs) screeching and wailing until he had no voice and no strength left. Gordon threw the meat in the corner near the door. They had left them something else, a vase, made of a clay-like material, thick and rough. He picked it up. Crude patterns had been carved on it. A lightning shape, a cloud, or maybe a bush. It was half filled with water. He shared it with Bill, then smashed the vase on a wall. It shattered into three large pieces, two smaller ones. He took one that could fit in his palm and handed it to Bill. Next time, we go for it. They may be stronger, but we're probably faster. We can't beat them. We
6: don't have to. All we gotta do is slip out. When they come back, we stay as far from the door as we can, force them to come across the room. Then, we run for it, give it all we got. If we have to, we aim for the eyes, to destabilize them enough so we have a chance to escape, right? (sighs) Right.
0: They fell into a grim silence again, sitting against opposite rock walls, the utter darkness weighing on them. Bill fidgeted, rubbed something on the ground, like a rat scratching his way out. Gordon massaged his swollen wrist. He dozed off. He awoke, dripping sweat. The darkness surprised him until he remembered where he was. Had he slept for five minutes or hours? Bill? Bill? No answer. Gordon crawled toward him and fumbled around in the dark until he found his companion. He tapped his shoulder... Got no response. A sticky liquid stained his hand. He patted up the chest, the neck, and withdrew his hand with a jerk. Bill's head tilted down. His throat was cut at the jugular on his left side, the wound still dripping. In his dead hand lay the sharpened piece from the vase. Gordon crawled back to the opposite wall. He felt like he should sob or get mad, but nothing came. Only fatigue. As horrifying as it was, maybe Bill had made the smart choice. As he struggled to stay alert, fantasies drifted in and out of his mind. A shotgun in his hands that would blast those monster's oversized heads, reconnecting with his wife, his daughter, reviving Bill and Arthur, bringing them back to the base. He had run away from Earth, had wanted to avoid the storm, hadn't put up a real fight when he had the chance. He would. Next time. But nothing came. As he sank deeper into drowsiness, felt himself getting weaker, his eyes shut and opened, opened and shut. He was still in a dream state when an earthquake brought him back. He straightened up, found only the same stale darkness. It was no earthquake. Glowing yellow eyes glided toward him. He merely had time to stiffen and reach for a piece of broken vase he never found. Hands seized his ankles, and his body dragged across the rock. One of the shapes threw him on its muscular shoulder. Gordon kicked and punched as they carried him through ebony corridors. His head hung next to the elongated, foul-smelling jaw that let out a growl as he elbowed his captor's skull. He went for the eye. The beast snorted and with one abrupt pull on his arm, dislocated Gordon's shoulder. A crack. A scream. Ah! Flashes of lightning now illuminated the rocky corridors. The storm was getting louder. They took him into a vast room with a large hole in the ceiling, revealing the tempestuous sky. Thunderbolts drowned the place in icy light at violent intervals. Pure night filled the blanks. In a wide circle, a dozen other creatures performed an animalistic dance, raised their arms above their heads, then pounded the ground with their hands. They worshipped the storm, roared every time lightning ripped the sky. Five of them gathered around Gordon and tore his clothes off, yanked his shoes from his feet and left him naked, covered with bleeding scratches. They dragged him to a metallic box from which spiked out long rods that stretched toward the sky. A bolt of lightning struck one of the rods, and the machine buzzed. They shoved Gordon in, shut the door. He found himself in complete darkness again. The box was tall enough for him to stand, but he could barely extend his arms on the sides. More droning, louder, and the walls closed in on Gordon. He pushed and knocked, but they crept closer. Cold tubes pressed against his bare thighs, arms, ribs, until he could barely move. The tubes emitted dim red light that intensified along with the buzzing. Then came the heat. A feeble warmth at first, then warmer, hotter, burning. Humans had given them the heater panels as a gift against the cold climate... A peace offering. They had them turned into a giant toaster. The tubes burned their way into Gordon's skin as the walls squeezed tighter. Tears flowed from his eyes. Every nerve ending screamed. The stench of his burning flesh filled the box. He struggled in vain. Each move only brought more pain. Outside, the monsters roared with excitement. He could picture them salivating at the prospect of their special feast. Gordon shrieked in agony and frustration. Not like that. He couldn't die like that. He needed one last chance at life. Old regrets loomed like scavengers around his dying hopes. His powerlessness filled him with a rage he no longer had the force to express. Then it stopped. The red glow faded... The buzz died out. The walls loosened, and Gordon could push them a little further, enough to move. His melted flesh still stuck to the tubes. A million hooks pulled him from all directions. Sharp sounds mixed with the storms and roars. Faint, very faint. Could it be... gunshots? Had they come for him? Had they stopped the machine? Or was it a figment of his failing senses and mind? Livened by the commotion outside, he moved forward. Shreds of skin tore from his limbs as he pulled them from the tubes. He'd have to go one at a time. Gathering all his remaining strength, he freed his right arm. A river of blood poured from his shoulder to his wrist. Then the thigh, leaving a red exposed wound one by one, until he could drag his flayed, half-roasted carcass forward. One slow step, another. His knees trembled, threatened to give in. He reached the door, but failed to pry it open. He tapped weakly on the metal, tried to scream, but the air came out as a low gurgle. He lay his ear on the door. Their roars seemed angrier, harsher. He slid against the door, dropped to his knees. His hand gripped a tube, but he couldn't pull himself up. A pool of blood formed underneath him. Something hit the box, followed by booming, piercing thunder. Triumphant roars outside. The buzzing resumed. The mechanism whirred, and the walls moved inward. And the red glow revived. All he could do was hope. Hope there were really people out there, and that they would win. Hope the turmoil he had heard wasn't only the creature's discontent at their machines stopping. Hope he would live long enough to find out. I'm sure we've all thought about it at some point. Being in an isolated location late at night when you see what is clearly some sort of alien craft in the sky and then watch it crash to Earth. Imagine the fame which would come from that. But in this tale, shared with us by author Daniel Cubius, we meet a man who discovers one such crash. If only it stopped at just one. Performing this tale is Dan Zapula. So keep your eyes on the skies, and if you see something, well, maybe just let others deal with it. You should probably stay away from the sight.
9: Nobody knew who I was just six months ago, but today, I'm famous Of course, six months from now, I'll return to a world where nobody knows who I am. However, this won't be because of some karmic equilibrium being regained or because my celebrity will flame out in the interim. It will be because nobody will remember anything. Everybody will be dead. That's why I'm writing all this down. It's just in case anyone lives through the catastrophe and stumbles upon this manifesto, or manuscript, or apology, or whatever you want to call it. This is so you'll know what happened, assuming that any of you are out there to read this. Six months ago, I was an unemployed accountant living at a friend's place in Joshua Tree. I had been there a week, just drinking and watching TV while waiting for some grand epiphany to guide me out of my midlife ennui. But the tequila and sitcom reruns weren't leading to any profound revelations. So one night, I hopped into my car and went for a drive through the desert. Now, I didn't actually see the thing land. I didn't even see it arch through the sky. Later, the media portrayed me as some wide-eyed hillbilly on the prowl for UFO sightings. But I want to be clear about this. All I saw was fire. And that was only after I heard the explosion behind me and felt the road shake. Nobody, and I mean nobody, was on the road other than me. And cell phone reception was non-existent, so I felt I had no choice but to drive toward the fire to see if anyone needed help. I figured somebody's trailer or fledgling meth lab had just exploded. But when I got to the site, I received a subtle hint that something unusual had just occurred. My first clue was the metallic hull of a ship sticking out of a vast crater. Yes, that was just a little bit odd. So I pulled out my phone and taped the conflagration. Maybe it's an Air Force jet, I said over my shaky video. But even through the flames and smoke, you can see that it's square-shaped. What kind of jet is that? (laughs) It wasn't a jet, as we all found out soon enough. Of course, the government didn't confirm the ship as extraterrestrial until a week later, long after my video had gone mega-viral and well into my 14th minute of fame. You see, I was the guy who had captured the moment on tape. I was the first human to encounter a verified spacecraft from another world. I was world-famous, however, nine days later, The next set of humans to see a UFO land weren't as lucky as me. They were squashed, or maybe vaporized, it was hard to tell, when the second craft smashed into a house just outside Prague. At that point, all of humanity pretty much lost it. One crash was amazing, but two was a calamity. Why were these Martian pilots such horrible drivers? How come they couldn't land their ships safely? When the third spaceship obliterated part of Kyoto, a group of scientists offered a disturbing hypothesis. They theorized that the UFOs weren't full of brave explorers from an advanced alien civilization who tragically perished while trying to reach us. The truth was more pedestrian and more menacing. The UFOs were garbage trucks. They were crammed with nothing but extraterrestrial waste. Unmanned, they were launched off a distant planet and shot through space according to the principles of inertia. Look up the laws yourself. I don't have time to do all your work for you. But look under Newton. Whatever intelligence sent the ships could not have cared less where they went or when they landed or how they fared. They just wanted the junk to be gone. And who could blame them? We would do the same if we could. So this ship sailed through the galaxy for decades or centuries or eons, the waste preserved because the bacteria inside had died in the coldness of space. And then it crashed here, causing a ruckus and making us believe that we had friends across the universe. But we were just the lucky sight of a landfill. No more fortunate than plankton in our oceans that gets swamped by oil spills. Whoever the aliens are, They either don't know or don't care if we exist. But they're definitely smarter than us. They're keeping their planet alive by sending us their debris. The hypothesis that the ships were nothing more than garbage trucks was confirmed when scientists analyzed the cargo, for lack of a better word. They found the same gooey messes, the same paperish discard, the same squashed metals. Soft tissue that many had believed was the remains of a liquefied Martian was probably spoiled food from a distant cosmos. Others conjectured that it was the remains of an alien infant's used diaper. In any case, there was supporting evidence for the garbage truck theory. For example, the shielding on the UFOs was inadequate, implying that whoever sent them didn't care if the ships landed in one piece or not. Ultimately, the best minds in the world made the public declaration that all three ships were nothing more than barges of waste. In response to the irrefutable evidence, there was screaming, name-calling, and bizarre claims that the scientists were covering up something even more sinister than our planet getting pummeled. There were New Age pronouncements that we were too dull to appreciate the higher intelligence coming to save us all. There were websites proposing conspiracy theories far more complex than what had actually gone down, and the near-anarchy became full-fledged anarchy when the fourth UFO landed, taking out a chunk of Nairobi. In the death and destruction that followed, everyone sane quickly agreed that Benevolent Martians were not being klutzy navigators and crashing after a journey of millions of miles. They were bombarding us with garbage, and there was no way to make them stop. The fifth ship landed in the Pacific, causing a tsunami to slam into Hawaii. Ship number six took out central Mexico City, killing thousands of people. Ships seven and eight landed in the Australian outback and an Idaho cornfield, respectively. So not much chaos there. But number nine smacked right into Cairo and there was more death. Ship number 10 caused a tidal wave in the Mediterranean, and number 11 notched Madagascar. The 12th ship basically ended Chicago. After the first dozen, they started coming too fast to count, and every country soon had its very own alien spaceship raining down upon it. The actual death and destruction they caused was bad enough, but the dust they kicked up did more for the greenhouse effect than did all the cars in history. The days got hazy after three months of crash landings, and after numerous ships nailed the Arctic, scientists announced that the ocean level was rising. Soon, we were awash in alien garbage, and people just hoped an incoming crate of Martian goop didn't annihilate them during the night. As I write this, crops have started to wither, and small animals are dying. People are starving in heavily hit regions, and the toll of people directly killed by the ships is in the millions. And still, we have no way of contacting the aliens, except to beam a radio wave in the rough general direction of where the ships came from, hoping that someone receives it some millennia hence and happens to be listening and happens to recognize it as a call. Even then, what will they do? Assuming that they can decipher our signal, will they even care? Probably not, I guess, because they're obviously pretty busy. Just a look at all the garbage they're creating. Last month, the governments of the world got together and tried blowing the things out of the sky with intercontinental missiles. They missed more often than not, and one ICBM obliterated a town in France. The few direct hits just split the garbage barges into two or three less lethal pieces, huge chunks that were still big enough to take out whole city blocks. In the midst of this counter-offensive, North Korea attacked South Korea. They thought the world was too preoccupied dealing with the alien wreckage to notice. But no matter what else is happening, the nations of Earth are never too busy for war. America sent troops and fighter planes and missiles that should have been used, deflecting death from above, to the Korean Peninsula. China sent the same to our opponents. The battles weren't much to admire. They usually ended when a UFO burrowed into somebody's headquarters and took out the troops. The war was over in a week. The dead received no honors, and the returning veterans got a quick parade that was rushed to its conclusion so a garbage comet wouldn't scatter the heroes. North and South Korea remained as they were before the conflict, and the last war in human civilization ended in a pointless draw. As for me, not working for the last year or so looks pretty smart now. It would have been a complete waste of my time. However. I don't think we have long left. So if you read this, maybe you will understand why this planet is nothing but a garbage heap. It's all rotted buildings and shattered highways and scorched earth. If you see any people alive among the craters and debris, tell them to keep looking up. Literally, not figuratively. Until then, I will just watch as more barges slam into my devastated home. After all this, I have come to one realization. I'm pretty sure we had this coming.
0: In our final tale, we meet a group of archaeologists exploring newly discovered ancient ruins. What makes this site different is that it's on an uninhabited planet. And in this tale, shared with us by author Simon Bleakin, despite all life being extinct on the planet, they discover a shrine, a shrine which they decide to open. Performing this tale are Andy Cresswell, Jeff Clement, Ilana Charnell, and Katabal So if you find yourself at an ancient shrine devoid of life, ask yourself, what deity did they worship? And why should you fear the breath of the God?
10: I was crouching in a narrow tunnel surrounded by dust and shadow when I first heard the screams. Dozens of them rising together into a raw, agonized crescendo before ending abruptly and leaving only an awful, hollow silence in their wake. Shocked. I held my breath, aware only of the ancient walls pressing heavily in upon me, the grit sifting down from the ceiling, and the fast, heavy thudding of my heart. The narrow, enclosed space was like an oven. Every breath dried my mouth, making it hard to swallow. The skitter of loose sand and rocks from behind me broke that awful silence as Ben Morgan scrambled into sight the light from his torch dancing wildly about the walls. Like me, he was dusty and disheveled. Sweat and dirt darkened his clothes and matted his hair to his head. He seemed startled to see me, and I opened my mouth to speak, but he held a shaking finger to his lips, listening. When he finally lowered it, his eyes met mine, and I saw the terror within them. What was that? My voice was little more than a whisper, as if the fear in my colleague were contagious.
8: They, they, they opened it. They opened a the shrine.
10: The shrine in question was our nickname for a sealed vault deep within the ancient catacombs on the uninhabited desert world of Aklis VI. The ruins had been discovered by a passing survey probe nine years earlier, and it had taken this long to assemble the necessary interest and funding to mount an expedition. As such, we were the first archaeologists to ever visit the site. We'd been here for just over 12 weeks now, and were finally completing our initial inspection of the subterranean complex the sheer scale of the site had surprised us all, as had the remarkable preservation of the chambers and tunnels that boasted intricate bas-reliefs and thousands of panels of carved text. Unfortunately, none of those reliefs gave any clue to the appearance or form of the beings that had constructed this place, or clarified whether this structure was a tomb or a temple, or served some ritual purpose not yet clear to us. But the biggest mystery of all, and the thing that had generated the greatest speculation, was the sealed vault deep at its heart. The general consensus was that it was likely a kind of naos, perhaps a space for a sacred statue or even a vault for the remains of the dead, since no bodies had been discovered elsewhere. The writing flanking the doorway, as best we could translate it, indicated it to be the Repository of the Breath of the God. But nobody was entirely sure what that meant. We couldn't even be certain that our translations were entirely accurate. Our computer and linguist were both drawing on known cultures from nearby systems and suspected similar language roots. It was nothing short of an enigma. And now, apparently, it was open. What do you mean they opened it? It was agreed to wait until. Ben
8: shifted uneasily, glancing behind him. Riley got impatient. You know what he's like. But never mind that. Something inside moved. Moved? It can't have. I'm telling you, something came out of it.
10: That's impossible. That thing's been sealed since, well, before humans were walking upright. This whole place has been abandoned for millennia. Nothing could be alive in there.
8: I saw it.
10: A shiver crept along my spine. What did you see? He stared blankly at me, as though unable to find the words to express it finally he shook his head i, I
8: don't know a, a shadow a ripple I, I don't know how to describe it it was there and then it wasn't it rushed out howling like the wind that's when everybody started screaming that's when i ran
10: Suddenly, the shadows around us seemed a little too deep for my liking. I almost reached for my radio before remembering that the crystalline deposits within the stones had the effect of blocking any signals. We should go back, see what's happening. He grabbed my arm.
8: You didn't see it. You didn't see the way they started writhing and flailing like a... It it burned them or something. Suddenly,
10: that pervasive silence became more disturbing. If people were hurt, why was nobody crying out? Why was nobody else going to help them or calling for assistance? Where was everyone? We're going back there. His eyes widened. I'm not... We have to get away from here. Back to camp. Somebody might need help. And since I can't squeeze past you in this narrow tunnel, you're coming too. The anxious half-crawl back through those tunnels was horrible. The stench of combined body odor in such a tight space was nauseating. And the sinister silence of the catacombs, punctuated only by the rough scuffle of our boots and the whisper of fine grit sifting down, made everything seem more claustrophobic than before. It should have been a relief when the tunnel opened up into one of the larger chambers, but it wasn't. The darkness was like a wall pressing upon us even here. And I realized the lights we had set up throughout the site had all stopped working. I quickly inspected the first set that we came to and saw they looked corroded, as if they had been submerged in some kind of acid. Where are we? I frank, shining my light through the dusty air. It was so easy to get lost down here in this multi-layered labyrinth. This way. He reluctantly gestured the black void ahead of us. We're almost… A sound like the mournful wail of the wind mixed with a human scream echoed from somewhere far off. A cold shiver iced my spine. The sound was unearthly. It made me think of the old stories of the Banshee from Earth, whose mournful wail foretold a death. Ben shot me an anxious glance, and I managed to grab his arm before he could bolt for the passageway again.
8: You're staying with me. That was it.
10: He tried to wrench his arm free, his eyes scanning the darkness. It's still out there. Yes, but it's not close by. Listen, it's moving away from us, deeper into the ruins.
8: What if it comes back? Keep your ears open, okay?
10: We edged gingerly through the darkness, our torches cutting a path ahead. The air was humid and stale, and now tainted with something coppery. That was when the torch picked out a pool of blood spreading across the flagstones. A few more steps, and two bodies came into view. Ben inhaled sharply, but I could only stare. They were just skeletal remains, utterly devoid of any traces of clothing, skin, and hair. Ben swallowed dryly from
8: beside me. Hussein and Riley. They were closest to when it opened. It can't be. I
10: crouched and examined them. Nothing should have been able to pick a body clean so quickly or so thoroughly in such a short space of time. And what had happened to all their clothing and equipment? Lifting my torch, I peered into the now-open shrine, seeing to my surprise nothing more than a square chamber with featureless walls and six stone slabs, almost like mortuary tables. I had expected to find remains within, wall inscriptions, perhaps even a repository of treasures, burial goods and artifacts. But there was nothing. A faint moan from close by snapped my attention back to the unfolding crisis around us. Turning my flashlight in the direction of the sand, I saw movement and my stomach lurched. It was Jeff, One of our interns, he lay on his back, body twitching convulsively, eyes rolling wildly in their sockets, and a face pale and slick with sweat. I moved to his side and was about to reach out when Ben called for me to stop. That was when I realized the skin on Jeff's left arm was bubbling like boiling tar. No, it was more than just bubbling. The flesh was actually deteriorating too, necrotizing and melting, and this same bizarre corrosion was spreading across his entire left side. His clothing and gear were crumbling apart even as I watched, and the sizzling stench of cauterizing flesh and melting plastic flooded my nostrils. He tried to speak, his voice a wetly gurgling jumble of incomprehensible sounds. Jeff. He reached a dripping skeletal claw out towards me as if begging for help, the hissing flesh oozing off his bones like melting wax.
8: Can you hear me?
10: I scrabbled back as he opened his mouth and a bubbling spray of blood erupted from his throat, spattering across the flagstones. Even as I scurried backwards, his body began to thrash and writhe, bloody spittle frothing at his lips. His eyes rolled back to the whites as his body bucked and thrashed, his good hand clawing the floor hard enough to rip the nails from his fingers. His back arched and his whole body went rigid before finally falling still, one glassy eye staring at the ceiling and the other just an empty bone socket. I didn't need to check for a pulse to know he was gone. It took a moment before I was able to move. I directed my torch beam over his remains, fighting to keep my hand steady. Half of his body had dissolved completely away, leaving only skeleton exposed to the air. The rest of him appeared unaffected, and completely intact.
8: It's where it touched him, passed across him, whatever.
10: I turned away, a hand over my mouth. We need to go. Ben cast his light around the walls, as if expecting some leering monster to come charging out of the shadows. Is this what happened to the others, I mean? Before he could speak, something shifted in the darkness to our right. A scuffle of movement against stone and the trickle clatter of displaced rubble. We angled our torches onto a small opening in the wall that looked like a ventilation shaft. The scraping was coming from within. Something was crawling or sliding along it towards us. Then a hand burst out of the darkness. I nearly dropped my torch. That groping hand was followed by a head. And then Heather Taylor, one of our senior archaeologists, crawled out, blinking in the light of our torch beams as she shook the dust from her hair.
11: afraid
10: everyone was dead. Not everyone. I didn't mention the bodies lying behind us. The shadows had swallowed them again and I felt it was best that she didn't see them. I moved in front of Jeff's body in a hasty attempt to hide it.
11: There's something down here.
10: She stopped staring at the floor behind my feet with an expression of dawning horror. Who was that? It's Jeff. So much for my attempt to hide the remains. She closed her eyes and exhaled softly.
11: Jesus.
10: It got
8: the others, too.
10: I shot then a savage glare. Shit. She closed her eyes for a second, processing.
11: I was afraid of that. We heard screams right before Tom died.
10: Tom? What happened?
11: We were in one of the temple spaces. And there was a sound. And something in the air like heat haze, you know? It just passed through him and he... I tried to help him but there was nothing I could do. And it came back for me and I ran. I got lost, dropped my torch and ended up stumbling around down in the dark for... Well, how long has it been? I could hear it howling up and down the tunnels the whole time. It was like it was searching for me. I mean, what the fuck is that thing?
10: It was something they let out of the shrine. She stared at me.
11: Seriously? How is that possible?
10: Let's worry about that when we're out of here. We're only a few levels below the surface. We
8: won't make it.
10: I resisted the urge to shake Ben and flashed my light back at the narrow opening in the wall that Heather had crawled out of. What about the ventilation shafts? Heather made a face.
11: I wouldn't recommend them. They're tight and it's impossible to tell where you are once you're in them. I only use them because i run into a dead end. If that thing came howling down one of them while you were in it, you'd never be able to move fast enough to get away.
10: Well, whatever this thing is, it makes a noise. We should hear it coming. I say we stick to the main tunnels.
11: Works for me. It's fast though. We only had a few seconds after we first heard it before it was upon us.
10: I flashed a glance at Ben. Are you coming? He nodded quietly and followed as we set off along the passageway. We moved as quickly as we dared through the darkness, trying to stay silent and keeping our lights as low as possible. We didn't know what this thing homed in on—movement, sound, lights— but we didn't want to take any chances of drawing it towards us.
11: Up ahead, then right.
10: Left, isn't
11: it? Right, and then left.
10: I was thankful I couldn't see her withering glance in the low light.
11: I'm glad we're not relying on your sense of direction.
10: Blame whoever designed this place. The layout of the structure meant there was no one single staircase rising up through the levels. Rather, it felt as if the place had been constructed as a labyrinth. Perhaps it was all symbolic and had formed part of a ritual or rite, or perhaps it was just a bad design. Either way, it meant there was no easy way out. We took the right turn, then left, and hurried along a long straight section of hallway. At the next intersection, Heather was about to head straight on when I grabbed her arm. Listen. For a moment, she stared at me, and then she heard it too. A sound, like a long, ghostly exhale of breath that just kept on going and going. Oh, shit. In seconds, it had grown louder, the hiss of breath rising into a scream. As the sinister wail echoed desolately through those pitch-black tunnels, it seemed for a moment to be all around us. Down here, the acoustics made it impossible to get a fix on its direction, with the sound bouncing off of the walls and travelling along the passageways. The only thing we knew for sure was that it was getting closer.
8: Which way?
11: I don't know.
8: It seemed to
10: be coming from four different tunnels at once, both ahead of us and behind us. We couldn't stay there, not in the place where all those passageways converged, but if we picked the wrong one, we were dead. Which way do we go? I think... I began turning to face him. It was nearly the last thing I ever did. It was only Ben, seizing our arms and dragging us sideways into the leftmost tunnel that kept us from being instantly killed as it burst out of the central tunnel. In the dim light, it was all but invisible, just a shimmering ripple caught in the light from our torches. As it tore past us, I felt the walls shake grit sifted down as the heavy stones vibrated, but all of that was drowned out in seconds by the shrieking blast of sound that filled the hallway, as if from the anguished screams of countless tormented souls. It was as if every life claimed by the thing was crying out in a single voice. We clamped our hands over our ears, staggered by the onslaught. In seconds, it had passed us, howling away down a branching tunnel to our right. We heard the sound fading, receding, until it was once more just a long, drawn-out exhale of breath. Then, that too was gone. For a moment, we just stood there, stunned, our ears still ringing and our bodies trembling. That had been too close for comfort. Ben sagged against the wall like a deflating balloon and looked like he was about to throw up. Heather nodded at him.
11: Where are you one?
10: When he didn't respond, she asked softly.
11: Ben? Are you- We're a- not
10: going to get out, are we? That's enough of that kind of talk. We just need to be more careful. We hurried down the next few passageways as quickly as we dared, constantly glancing over our shoulders, listening for the slightest sound that might warn of approaching danger. Everything was eerily silent, just the distant clatter of falling particles of dust in the darkness. We found a staircase a few tunnels along, and our spirits lifted as we hurried up it. Even knowing we would have to negotiate a whole new level didn't affect our growing sense of hope. It was still a step closer to the outside world.
11: They called it the breath of the god. The shrine, I mean.
10: I nodded. Yeah, I guess it's symbolic.
11: What if it's not?
10: We reached the top of the staircase, checked left and right, our torches cutting through the gloom and illuminating the bas reliefs lining the walls, though not as strongly as before. I realized the power cells were running down and shivered at the idea of being stuck down here if they failed. Heather indicated the right hand passage and I wondered how she could remember it all so well. What did you mean about it maybe not being symbolic?
11: Well, from what we figured out, and we don't know much, their deity appears to have been some kind of destroyer god. I found inscriptions to the rot that consumes, the corruption that purifies. I'm guessing they had some crazy ideas that dissolution is the ultimate state of purity.
10: That would be a first in many ancient cultures you didn't get into the afterlife unless you had a preserved body
11: i have a funny feeling these guys may have had the opposite idea but that's just a guess
10: are you saying they used this thing to dissolve their dead
11: well i didn't exactly say that but it might explain why we haven't found any bodies what if The breath of the god is a living manifestation of that dissolution. I mean, there aren't any coffins, loculi or sarcophagi. Nowhere for the dead to be stored.
10: They could have buried their dead elsewhere. This might only be a funerary temple, or simply a place of worship. Hell, for all we know, this might just be their equivalent of a movie theatre.
11: Is that what you really think?
10: A good archaeologist doesn't jump to conclusions.
11: Oh come on, I know you better than that. What do you really think?
10: Okay, the truth? I'm scared you might be right. That this could be where they turned the dead into dust. And if so, I'm really worried that we've let out the thing that did it. With no idea how to control or stop it. I agree.
8: I think you're both making quite a leap.
10: Ben cast nervous glances over
8: his shoulder. Look, let's just cut the chatter and get out of here. We can all have a long chat over a strong drink about what the hell is going on later.
10: We fell silent at that following the slowly dimming light of our torches through that hot enclosed maze of stone, relying solely on Heather's memorized path to the surface. From time to time, we heard that awful distant howl rising up through the surrounding ventilation shafts. Though again, it was impossible to tell from which level or direction the sound was coming. We hoped it was below us and we hoped it was truly as distant as it sounded. But we had learned not to trust the acoustics in this ancient structure and readied ourselves to run should it come bursting out of one of those narrow shafts at any moment. I wondered why it was leaving the temple complex alone. It could have crumbled these ancient blocks to dust in no time. But I suppose gods wanted to be worshipped, and this place was as much its residence as it was the place where it had been venerated. We reached the base of the next staircase, halfway now to the surface, when Heather turned sharply, lifting her hand. Listen. Her ears were better than mine because for a moment I didn't hear a thing. Then I realized there was a sound soft as if deliberately muted somebody was sobbing ben stared at us
8: what are you doing we need to get out
10: somebody's still alive down here
8: yeah
10: good luck to them ben tried to push past us i blocked his path How do you feel if someone just abandoned
8: you? We can send help once we get to the- That thing might have killed them by then.
10: Heather fixed him with one of her icy glares.
11: You go if you want. We won't stop you. But we're going to help.
10: Ben stepped back, his gaze flicking uncertainly from the staircase to us and back again. I knew he was calculating his chances of getting out alone. I wasn't surprised when I found him following us as we moved off down a side tunnel looking for the source of the crying. We didn't have far to go. Three tunnels to the left and through a small antechamber, we emerged into one of the rooms that we had designated a chapel, for want of a better term. It was filled with rows of what appeared to be benches, all facing a raised platform at the far end. Somebody was huddled on the floor by one of the long benches, four rows in. Whoever it was didn't react, as our torchlight swept over them. I hung back, keeping an eye on both the doorway and bed as Heather went over. As she reached the figure, they stiffened in alarm and tried to crawl. I saw then that it was Raminda, one of our language experts. Her eyes were withered and milky white, and the skin around them was raw and melted as though burned.
2: Heather crouched beside her. Hey,
11: hey, it's only us. It's Heather. Ben and Alex are with me.
10: Reminda glanced towards the sound of her voice, her hands shaking as they reached out. She looked dazed and lost. Fighting through the shock and terror
2: Heather
11: <laughs> yeah, it's me
10: She gripped the other woman's hands tightly
11: can you move? i I think so right I'm going to help you out We'll guard you out. I didn't think anyone else was still down here. I was too afraid to call out <laughs> What happened to you? There was something here. A sound. I don't know what it was. It came rushing down the tunnel after me. I hid. Until it went by, but I wanted to see what it was. I waited until it was just a whisper. Then I looked out into the passageway. There was breeze across my face. So cold, it burned. And there were voices whispering. Then my eyes started burning too. Everything went dark.
8: Guess even a whisper is too soon to be safe. Raminda swallowed.
11: How bad is it?
10: Heather checked the withered orbs in her face
11: looks like you caught the tail end of it. Maybe the medbay at camp can do something to help you. Believe it or not, you were lucky. I'll take your word for that.
10: Our progress back through the tunnels towards the staircase was slower now that we had to help Reminda, and it was harder to keep our footfalls quiet. She was clearly still in shock running more on autopilot than anything else. And I could tell the reality of what had happened hadn't truly kicked in yet. As we turned the corner into a new section of hallway, Raminda cried out when we heard the inhuman wail echoing eerily through the ventilation shafts. A chorus of voices shrieking through the desolate blackness of the ruins.
11: It's okay, it's not here. It's below us, I think.
10: I hoped she was right. It sounded much louder than before.
8: Shouldn't we have reached the steps by now?
10: Ben's fading torch beam flashed across the walls.
8: No, it's...
10: I paused, glancing back and then peering ahead. I shook my torch to try and strengthen its failing beam. It was barely illuminating more than a foot ahead now.
8: I think he's right.
11: We must have taken a wrong turn.
8: I thought you knew the way.
11: You know, I really don't see you doing much to help us.
10: Hey, let's just back up. This earned a glare from both of them. We can't have gone too far wrong. Stay here. Heather gave Ben a final icy glance. I'll go check. I raised an eyebrow. Alone?
11: I'll be faster by myself, I'll be right back.
10: I watched her disappear along the hallway, retracing our steps. She only got about 10 feet before a howling wail exploded from the darkness. It sounded close, too close. I couldn't tell if it was below us or on our level. Raminda clung to my arm in terror as the whole structure shook, dust shifting down in dense choking clouds and the ancient stone blocks grinding and shifting. Ben dropped to the floor and put his hands over his head. There was another deep rumble of shifting stone, and a section of the tunnel floor gave way, collapsing into the chamber below it. I caught a horrible glimpse of heather plunging downwards amidst the shower of falling debris. For a moment, with everything still shaking, and with dust and rubble crashing into the hole, I didn't dare move. But once everything settled, I pulled away from Raminda's grip and ran to the edge of the opening. My dying torch only just made out Heather's form, lying twenty feet below. What's
11: going on?
10: Stay with her! I called to Ben as I climbed down into the hole, careful not to disturb any
8: loose rocks.
11: What is it?
8: Part of the tunnel gave way... I used the
10: fallen rubble and collapsed slabs to climb down as far as I could, then sprang to the floor. I was in some kind of chamber that I didn't recognize, but looking up I could see the fissures and cracks that spiderwebbed the ceiling. There must have been a natural fault in the rocks that time had worsened. Heather? I hurried over and crouched beside her. Fortunately, none of the blocks had fallen on her. Unfortunately, one of her legs was twisted at a strange angle. I could see a bloody nub of bone poking through torn flesh. She stirred groggily and then cried out in pain. Heather, can you hear me? The confusion that had clouded her eyes was quickly giving way to a pained lucidity as her awareness readjusted itself. She was shaking and looked like she wanted to throw up, but she was fighting against it all. I admired her strength. Easy. I'm here. She let out a gasp through gritted teeth. It looked like she was trying to sit up or roll over. I put a hand on her shoulder. She was trembling from shock and bleeding from a cut to her forehead. No, don't try to move. She nodded, teeth gritted.
2: Mm. How oh, bad.
10: Just a scrape. A oh, liar. She winced again.
11: Jeez, ah, it fucking
10: hurts. Yeah, it took quite a tumble. I moved around her, trying to get a better sense of her injuries.
11: Everyone else okay?
10: I smiled at that. How like Heather to think about everyone else before herself. They're fine. It's you we're worried about. She shook her head.
11: Leave me. Go get help. I'll just slow you down anyway.
10: Not going to happen.
11: Unless you plan on dragging me, you don't have much choice. Get out, get help. Come back if you can.
10: You wouldn't leave Reminda down here, and we won't leave you. How is she? She can't walk. We need to find something to use as a stretcher. Yeah, I know what you told me. I'm considering it a last resort. If we can... Listen. Her eyes widened. That was when I heard it. It was a low sound, like an impossibly long, drawn-out breath that just didn't stop. It was echoing up through the tunnels, but it was quickly getting louder. Closer. It must have been drawn by the sound of the collapsing rubble. You have to go. Ben, get down here. Give me a hand. No. Heather blinked tears from her eyes, her body shaking worse than before. I saw the wild fear in her eyes.
11: Go. There's no time for that.
10: The breath was getting louder turning into a howling screech. We won't leave you.
11: You have to.
10: She locked eyes with me, and I saw the fierce determination behind her terror.
11: If you don't, we all die.
8: We need to go! Wait! What's happening? It's coming! Can't you hear it?
10: Ben stared at me like I was insane. I'm going! Just wait! I need your help climbing back out! I turned back to Heather, desperately trying to think of some way to get her out too. But the hole was too high. Even if we had a stretcher, we'd never get her up through it. And with the rate that howling screech was turning into a scream, I knew we were already out of time. The whisper had once again transformed into an infernal, wailing chorus. It echoed through the chambers and tunnels as it swept towards us. It was much closer now. Soon it would be deafening. Then it would be deadly. I'm sorry. I wished I could think of something more meaningful to say. I never wanted anything like this. It's okay. But we both knew it wasn't. Just go. I felt like a traitor. No, worse, like a murdering coward as I climbed up out of that chamber. Ben pulling me up through the hole. I didn't look back. I couldn't. We broke into a run, guiding Raminda clumsily between us. By now, the walls were shaking from the approach of the entity. We could feel the vibrations pulsing through the floor and walls and our own bodies as it swept swiftly through the tunnels, drawing closer with each second. Dust poured onto our heads as stone blocks cracked and everything shook and I understood that those same vibrations had caused the ancient tunnel to weaken and collapse and now could very well bring the entire structure crashing down upon us. Heather's dying screams pursued us too, a cry of abject horror finally mingling and becoming lost in the wall of sound that exploded at our backs. I don't know how long we ran for, We were functioning solely on adrenaline and fear, instinct having swallowed any conscious thought. And nobody was aware of where we were going, not as long as it was away from that sound. I, for one, didn't want to stop running, didn't want to let my conscious awareness slide back into the driver's seat of my body. I knew the sickening guilt and shame that would come with it. The thing that finally stopped us was the torches going out. They had both been growing dimmer the whole time, letting the darkness encroach a little closer with each passing minute. And then, just like that, they flickered out, and the darkness was absolute.
8: What? What is it?
10: Ben was frantically shaking his torch. I could hear it rattling as he tried to coax just a little more power out of the drained cell. from somewhere behind came the sound of the entity sweeping around the neighboring tunnels a whispering sigh that rose to a raw scream and then rushed away again it was too close for comfort I felt Raminda's hand tighten on my arm.
8: We're screwed. That's where we are.
10: I heard the sound of Ben's torch bouncing along the hallway, the glass and bulbs shattering, and the casing breaking apart as he threw it angrily.
8: Keep it down. Well, what's your great plan, then? If we left when I said we'd be out by now.
10: That's not helping. Just... Let me think. Raminda let out the sigh. Look, we have to be somewhere by the west wall. At least, I think we are. I tried to build a mental map of the tunnels from my memory. It was difficult. The place was a warren, and I didn't know it half as well as Heather had. We must... I froze mid-sentence, aware that I could still hear Raminda's sigh. It hadn't stopped. In fact, it was getting louder. Raminda? Yes? That was when I knew it wasn't her sighing at all. I think the penny dropped with Ben too, because he cursed under his breath and started running. I heard him stumble and almost trip over the torch he had thrown. I grabbed Raminda's hand and ran after him, pulling her along as we fled blindly through the darkness. It took only seconds before I felt that awful shuddering vibration through the floor and walls around me. The whole structure groaned uneasily, and I was afraid those ancient blocks would crash down upon our heads as we coughed on the clouds of dust that filled the air. The sound behind us was swelling like a wave about to smash upon a shore until it felt as if I could feel the pressure of it upon our backs. Raminda was crying again, struggling to keep up, but I didn't dare slow down. I heard Ben disappearing off to the left and realized there must have been a branching tunnel. I almost collided with the wall trying to find it and then felt my hand sink into a space where the wall opened up. I ran into it, pulling Raminda behind me, but she never made it. Even as I turned into the side passage, I heard Raminda trip and cry out. Her hand was wrenched from out of mine, and I staggered forward too, sprawling onto the floor and biting my tongue in the process. The force dislodged my torch from its clip around my belt, and it flickered weakly back to life for a few seconds as it rolled across the tunnel. I snatched it up and looked back just as the entity tore down the main passageway. I heard the sound crescendo into that ear-splitting shriek. Raminda never even had time to get to her feet before it swept over her. The full force of it dissolved her body down to the skeleton in seconds. I caught her final moments in the failing beam of my torch before it went out for good and I heard her dying scream get added to its own. Then it was gone, just a whisper fading away down the hallway once more. The silence that followed was horrifying. I lay in the dark, lost and alone, no longer having any idea of the way out, nor of where Ben had gone. My mouth was filled with the coppery taste of my own blood, and I could hear nothing but the pounding of my heart. In the claustrophobic stillness, in the hot, dry air of the tunnel, I fought against the overwhelming dread that this tomb had now become my own. that I would never see the sky again, nor any of the friends and family that I loved. Finally, I coaxed myself to my feet and staggered along the corridor, hands groping into the darkness. I don't know how long this went on, but it felt endless. I blundered through several chambers of varying sizes and down more passageways than I could count. I had almost given up when I felt the breeze on my face. My first reaction was terror. I shrank up against the wall, whimpering, until I realized there was no sound accompanying it. It was just a breeze, the first I had felt since coming down here. Quickly, I checked my watch. The weak light that illuminated its face was too weak to use as a torch, but revealed it was now dusk up on the surface. The hot air during the day barely registered down in the permanent warmth within these tunnels but the cool air of the evening was like a refreshing balm against my skin. It didn't take me long to realize it must be coming in through one of the ventilation shafts. Throwing caution to the wind, I crouched and crawled inside the first one I found. I was larger than Heather and the fit was tight. The floor and ceiling pressed against me as I crawled forwards, heart hammering in my throat my progress agonizingly slow. As I went, I remembered Heather's warning. She was right. There was no way of knowing where I was or which way I was going from in here. Additional shafts opened off of this one and branched throughout the whole complex, a maze within a maze. Had this been during the day, there would have been only warm air flowing through them and no clues at all as to which direction to take. But now, The fresh, cool air of dusk gave me something to follow. For what felt like hours, I worked my way through those tight tunnels. In places where the shaft became almost vertical, I had to brace my feet against the sides and make use of whatever hand and footholds I could find, always listening in case that howling death came swooping through here to claim me. The whole time, I focused on that cool air coming in from outside. It was my lifeline, and my only hope of escape. Once, I thought I heard a drawn-out sigh, and I froze. But it was just the air moving through the shafts below and around me. Eventually, I realised the breeze was getting stronger, the air fresher, and I knew I must be close to the surface. I forced myself to stay calm and cautious all the same. It would be too easy to make a mistake or do something foolish in a desperate bid for the surface it was 20 minutes later that i finally wriggled out into the cool night air clawing rocks aside in a wild frenzy as my head emerged i was up on part of the steep pyramidal mound that rose above the complex on the surface and after the hot confines of the tunnels, that night air was like gulping down sweet wine. I half slid and half climbed down to the ground below, rejoicing in the open space around me. The sky above me studded with stars, and the cool air on my body The song of the desert greeted my ears, as the native insects filled the night sky with a cicada-like song, as they congregated on the gnarled trunks of the water roots that poked up through the sand and rock like slender, curled fingers. And overhead, the twin moons loomed large and yellow-white in the sky. I sank to my knees, closing my eyes and letting the moment take me. I had escaped. I thought of all those who had been lost down below, all those good people who would never leave that place which had become their tomb. I felt a pang of guilt that I had survived while they had died. Then I remembered the camp. I had to get help. Ben was still down there and there was a chance we might be able to save him. I reached for my radio and found it was missing. It must have worked loose and fallen while I had been crawling up through the shafts. So I climbed to my feet and started walking in the direction of the camp. I couldn't go any faster. After hours of crawling through cramped spaces, my body was stiff and aching. I'd only gone ten feet when I heard another sound on the night air. A low, drawn-out exhale from within the darkened entrance that led down to the subterranean complex. A cold dread flooded me. Surely it won't come out here. Unless there was nothing left to consume within the ruins. Without waiting to find out, I started running forcing my weary body into a final burst of energy, aware all the while that the sound was getting louder and closer, the exhale rising into that all too familiar wail that swallowed the song of the insects and filled the night with its raw fury. Up ahead, I could see the tall ridge of rocks behind which we had set up the camp. I knew there would be over a dozen people there right now, working on analysing all the data and scans we had brought back over the past weeks. I had to warn them. Maybe there was time to get everybody into the ship and get away from this place. Those thoughts were still in my mind when an icy wind blasted past me with a howling chorus of death and agony. I threw myself forwards onto the rocky dust of the desert as it soared overhead, shimmering against the stars. I lay there, shaking and terrified, until the howl had faded to a whisper, and didn't move until even that too was gone. But even as I climbed to my feet, I knew something was very wrong. My body burned all over, as if I had plunged into boiling acid. And in that heart sinking moment, I knew that whatever the breath of God is, I must have caught the tail end of it. I stumbled in panicked terror towards the camp. Already I could see the skin flexing and bubbling on my arms and legs. I only hoped the automated med systems on the ship would be able to do something with me if I could get there in time. It wasn't until I reached the rocks that I understood the true horror of the situation. Outside, without the narrow tunnels to contain it, the breath had expanded outwards like a vast moving mist, coiling and churning about the camp and entwining nebulous tendrils around the equipment. Flesh putrefied and melted beneath its touch, even as people tried to run for shelter. Metal tarnished and flaked to rust. Fabrics rotted away and people dropped writhing to the sand, their flesh splitting and pouring off their bones. It was terrifying to behold as the breath set about the camp, erasing in minutes any and every trace that we had ever been there. The vehicles collapsed as it eroded their shells, as too did our ship her vast hull decaying with shivering groans of buckling metal as the structure was compromised. That was the moment I knew I was never leaving. I staggered away, sickened and shaken. The only thing I could do now was to use my data recorder to try and send a warning to the relay probe in orbit. It was my only chance to warn people to stay away. We weren't too far from the major shipping routes. Somebody would hear if I sent a message. But I would have to get to higher ground if the signal were to have any chance of reaching it. I hurried for the highest ridge of rocks, staggering painfully. My skin was deteriorating at an alarming rate, droplets of molten flesh spattering onto the sand and my clothes were rotting on my body. What would happen when I was gone? Would that thing keep going now it was loose? Would it erode this whole planet into dust? Would it even stop there, or could it get out into space? Desperately, I started to climb, a decaying mass clad in rotting rags that left greasy smears of flesh against the rocks as I touched them. I heard a savage roar from behind me. The breath had finished with the last of the camp, and was now coming after the sole remaining living thing in the vicinity that had yet to be consumed. I scrabbled anxiously up the rocky ridge, clawing my way higher with what remained of my hands, fighting against the pain flooding my body with white-hot agony. A quick glance back and I saw it rolling across the landscape like an angry sandstorm, its passage churning up the desert dust as it raced towards me. With a terrified scream in my bleeding throat, I dragged my weakening body forwards. The exertion exacerbated the decay and I seemed to be leaving more of myself behind with each passing second. And then the entity simply stopped. It turned and drifted off, back towards the ruins. I don't know why. Had I moved beyond its range? Had I gone beyond the edge of the complex, leaving the sacred and entering the secular? Perhaps it was confined to the place where it had served its purpose for so long. I couldn't be sure, but I didn't waste any more time questioning it. I dragged what was left of myself to the highest point I could find. The lights on the data recorder flickered as I fumbled at them with splitting fingers. The device was corroding from within, just as I was. I prayed it would still transmit, but I had no way of knowing if a signal would be sent.
5: Selective
0: call frequency 2.
10: With my voice hoarse and ragged, I spoke into it. If you're receiving this, don't come here. Don't come looking for us. There's nothing here but death. I hit the button to transmit, the lights on the device flickering out as acrid smoke curled from the top of it. Then it crumbled in my hands. I really hoped the message got through. At the rate I was deteriorating, there was no time to try anything else.
0: This night, poetic works from darkness alight. We leave you with this, a question on a theme. Is all that we see or seem but a dream within a dream? The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Michalski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Ollie White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at The No Sleep Podcast, We thank you for being a supportive Season Pass member and for joining us within the exquisite horror of our reality. This audio program is copyright 2023 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors.